Well, good morning once more. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you. As you heard uh, LC uh, read through some scripture, we're going to find ourselves in Colossians chapter 3, going all the way through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning, and so uh, I'm pretty sure everything that you need to be caught up on will be on the announcement video uh, later this morning. If not... Um, Sorry. Uh, if you are new, uh, if you need a Bible, we have those available for you in the rows uh, where you're seated. We also have some Bibles at the Connect desk. That's our gift to you, so take one with you if you don't have one. If you know someone that would benefit from having uh, a Bible that is the Word of God, take one, hook them up, bless them, um, and, uh, and, and, and continue to preach the gospel to them. Um, once more, if, if you're cool because of the amount of, of Scripture that we have today, I'd love to just dig into our time. If, if you hadn't caught up, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been in a sermon series titled The Supremacy of Christ, uh, and we're walking through the book of Colossians. It's this little book in the New Testament sandwiched between uh, uh, Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, especially when we began this series, the Apostle Paul provided this very high view of, of, of the person and work of Christ, ultimately saying that the supremacy of Christ is what assures us of the sufficiency of Christ. And as we have made our way into chapter 3 and now chapter 4, uh, we are examining what it looks like for the Christian to walk in Christ. That is what it looks like practically to live out our faith in Jesus Christ. If you remember, uh, about two weeks ago when we began chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul transitions in his letter by encouraging the Colossians to remember their identity in Christ, that that's where it all starts. And he went on to say things like, if you have been raised with Christ, uh, uh, another translation would be, since you have been raised with Christ. That's in verse 1 of chapter 3. Elsewhere, Paul goes on to say, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he continues, put off the old self and put on the new self. This is back in chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 11. The meaning behind Paul pressing the Colossians uh, on their identity was to assure them that this is who they really are. There are false teachers that were trying to persuade the Colossians to not only add to their faith, but to do more so that they would experience um, uh, real spirituality. And what the Apostle Paul does in Colossians is he smashes those arguments and he assures the Colossians that, no, 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 this is who you are because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. That not only have you been forgiven and redeemed, but you have also received a new heart with new desires. You have received a new mind, therefore it is renewed. Elsewhere in Colossians, he goes on to say, therefore set your mind on things that are above. I'm not telling you that so that you would become or that so that you would belong to Christ. It is in fact because you already belong to Christ. Set your mind on things that are above. And the thing is, if in Christ if we are in Christ, I should say, then we must realize that the gospel affects not only how we view our heart, our ethics, our, our relationship, our vocation, and our overall life, but we must realize that the gospel also changes our motivation in these areas. 
In other words, the motivation isn't primarily, I just want to do good or I just want to do better. Being raised with Christ means that we are now a new creation, and as a new creation, our hearts and desires have been changed. Our mind is renewed. Who we used to be is not who we are now. Therefore, the work of spiritual growth, that is sanctification, must take place and increase. When you consider chapter 3, Paul is being very practical in his approach to the Christian life. And we need to ask some, I think, questions that we normally wouldn't. We need to ask questions like, why would Paul tell us to put to death sexual immorality? Why would he tell us not to lie to one another? Why would he tell us to admonish one another? Why does Paul tell wives to submit to their husbands? And why does he tell husbands to, to love their wives? The reason that these uh, topics exist is because apart from our identity in Christ, sin corrupts the whole self. You see, apart from Christ, our desire isn't only to rebel against God, but it is to sin against one another. And when we come to know Christ, the scales fall off of our eyes to realize how we have sinned against a holy God. How we are sinners in need of a gracious Savior. And how we engage the world around us matters. In Christ, when we surrender ourselves to Him, we become new. We are forgiven of our sin. We are released from our bondage to sin. And as a result, we, we must be taught how we are actually meant to interact with our desires, with one another, and in our relationships. So again, not only how we view relationships and ethics, not only has that been changed, but so has our motivation in our ethics and relationships. Our primary motivation in our ethics and relationships and vocation is the glory of God's name. Briefly, go back to verse 17 with me. Paul writes, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That not just have our our, our hearts have been changed, our mind has been renewed, we have been freed from the bondage to our sin, our motivation for the gospel having such an impact in our relationships and ethics and vocation the motivation has changed. The motivation isn't just to be a better version of yourself. The motivation is to bring God, uh, to bring glory to God's name, to exalt Christ, to make much of him, to be more like Jesus. So as we consider uh, verses 18 through chapter 4, let me pray and then we'll, we'll dig into our time because some feathers will be ruffled. All right. Father, as we come before you and examine your word, Father, I'm I'm just going to lay a couple of things on the table. Number one, Holy Spirit, would you discern the condition of our heart and expose it? Additionally, Father, may, may your word be sweeter to us than honey. May we find everything from challenge to conviction 
to comfort as a result of digging into your word this morning. God, we pray that you would be glorified and that we would be sanctified in this time for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. Beginning in ver- with, excuse me, beginning with verses 18 and 19. Now, these can be uh, quite controversial verses, especially in our time, particularly dealing with the word submit. And overall, the general view of roles between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. However, before we dig into verses 18 and 19, I want to present you with a couple of things. The first one is, I'm going to ask you to be patient, and don't tune me out just because you don't like the use of the language, okay? Let me, let me teach and preach and explain, right? Paul elsewhere in 2 Timothy goes on to say that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, rebuke, and correction so that, so that we would be equipped. So, so be patient with me. The second thing is, I want you to remember why these verses, not just 18 and 19, but the entirety of what we're about to cover, I want you to remember why these verses exist. That at one point the Colossians were walking in one way, they were walking in their flesh, and as Christ has saved them, made them his, their hearts have changed, and so now they're walking a new life. Right? They have uh, understood that apart from Christ their heart was dead, that they were corrupt. Now in Christ they have been given a spiritual new life. Therefore, they must be taught what it looks like to actually walk in Christ, to, look like, to, to address what it looks like to actually walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And so in short, we could say it this way, that these verses uh, exist because something has gone wrong. We need to be taught the, the correct way, the godly way, the way in which God actually designed us to originally walk in. So something has gone wrong. And if we're going to understand what has gone wrong, we need to go back to the beginning. Okay? So I'll just give you kind of a brief overview. Now, this does apply to verses 18 and 19 as we are talking about wives and husbands. So I'm going to continue giving you a couple of things. First one is, when we go back to Genesis 1, beginning in verse 27, we see that God created man and woman in his image. That tells us a couple of things. The first thing it tells us is that men and women were created with value, worth, and dignity. That men and women are actually image bearers. That they that we reflect God's characteristics. Every single person is an image bearer. When you fast forward to Genesis chapter 2, we see, uh, let's just say, we see Adam and Eve in the context of marriage, and, and they're given some responsibilities. They're, they're given the garden to cultivate. Right? God tells them to, to, to create, to be fruitful and multiply, to enjoy one another, and have all the kids, all the children's. But in addition to that, he tells them that the whole point of this is so that they would reflect his glory in obedience. That he is the one who has given them worth, dignity, and value. He is the one who has given them their identity. That they belong to him. That they are now stewards of what he has entrusted them with. And then if you fast forward a couple of verses into Genesis chapter 3, we see that man man and woman sinned. That Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed God because they wanted to be God themselves. And a curse was brought upon them. And as a result of sin entering into the world, we are now by nature and choice sinners. 
But moving back to the curse that God puts upon them, this is a broad overview. To the woman in Genesis 3.16, he, he goes on to say that not only were, will her pain in, in childbirth uh, uh, increase, he goes on to say that your desire is actually going to want to be to rule over your husband. To the man in, in verse 17, he tells them that, man, you're going to work and it's going to be frustrating. And let me just tell you something right now, guys. Right? When it comes to work, that is not a post-fall curse. It's a pre-fall gift. All right, put them in the garden to cultivate it. That's work. Not the agas. A lot of those phrases coming out today. <laughs> Nevertheless, the idea here is that there's, there's going to want to be a desire for you to dominate your wife. And so now when we go back to Colossians 3, 18 and 19, we realize, man, these verses actually really matter. We need these verses to let us know not only what marriage was originally meant to look like, but that in Christ, marriages can be restored and redeemed. And that's primarily what we're looking at in these two verses. If we're looking at how the gospel affects our relationships, we're going to begin with marriage. And so you and I need to know that the Holy Spirit not only breaks social and racial and ethnic barriers, but also breaks relational barriers and in order to conform them into the image of Christ. You see, a godly marriage is the result of redemption in Christ. So, give you a couple of things to chew on. Let's start with verse 18. Once more, because we have a lot of ground to cover. Paul opens up by saying, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Sisters, let me me speak with you for a moment. I want you to know that I love y'all. I want you to know that I want to honor y'all this morning. And most importantly, I want to point y'all to the person and work of Christ, not me. So, as we're going to look at verse 18, I want you to notice a couple of things that Paul says. Number one, Paul is addressing women in the context of marriage, right? He says wives, and as a result, because he is addressing wives, he's not addressing all women, right? Additionally, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. He does not say, submit to all men. So if a dude says, I'm a dude, just punch him. (laughs) Those of you who are single or in a relationship, you're not off the hook, (laughs) right? But we're going to begin with wives because that's where the text begins. So those are two important things. He's addressing wives in the context of marriage, right? Not all women. In addition to that, right, he's saying wives submit to your husbands, not all men. The next thing that I think is important for us to address in this one verse is the word submit. Yeah, everybody's like, yeah, what does it mean? It's important to define what it means and most importantly, what it does not mean. So let me begin with what submission does not mean. Submission to your husbands does not mean to be dominated by your husbands. It does not mean to be belittled or ignored or abused or treated inferiorly. In fact, I would go on to say that if this is happening, if you are experiencing the domination of your husband or domination from your husband, uh, belittling, abuse of any kind, treated inferiorly, you need to come tell me. 
you need to come tell me. And if we need to get the authorities involved, I don't mind calling them either. But you need to come and tell me. Additionally, submission also does not mean that you are going to agree on everything. It does not mean that you are obligated to be led into sin. It does not mean that you are robbed of freedoms. It does not mean silence. And it does not mean that you are fully dependent on your husband. So I hope you receive some freedom in that as to what submission does not mean. Therefore, it leads us to, well, what is it that it actually means? But before we get there, if you're experiencing any kind of or this kind of leadership as a pastor or as your pastor, as a brother, as a friend, I'm not going to tolerate it. So tell me and I'll deal with him. What does it mean then? Here it is. Submission means voluntary willingness. A voluntary willingness to come under authority or leadership. I'll say it one more time. It's so quiet. Voluntary willingness to come under authority or leadership. You see, when we look at Genesis 3, wives can have a propensity to respond to uh, their husband's leadership in one of two ways. I am not a professional in this, so I'm not saying these are the only two ways, but we're going to look at two ways. Wives have a propensity to respond in one way, in the sense that they desire to rule over their husband, that wives can be mean and abusive and manipulative and controlling and domineering themselves. Or wives can be passive-aggressive, undermining their husband, disrespecting them, underhanded comments, little daggers constantly thrown at them and their character. That is the propensity that we see wives will have from Genesis 3. Now, sisters, let me tell you, if that is you, you need to repent. The guys always get, like, yelled at, and that's no different today. But, or I should say, and, and, ladies, if this is you, repent. Repent. It does not bring honor to the Lord. It does not bring honor to your husband. It does not bring honor to your marriage. Particularly, the reason it doesn't bring honor to your marriage is because of the second half of verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. You see, to submit to your husband's spiritual leadership means that you actually desire him to lead in a way that is godly by respecting him. Now, you might push back and say, well, you don't know my husband. You, you don't know how my husband is. He is rebellious and he's loudmouth and all sorts of things. When we go to, for instance, 1 Peter 3, or I think it's 1 Peter 3, Peter goes on to say that, that wives' conduct, because they know the Lord, ought to be redemptive in, their, in, 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 in the reflection of Christ. In other words, your husband may be loudmouth, he may be arrogant. What's going to stop him, like what's going like to kind of make him hit a wall, is your redemptive conduct because your eyes are fixed on your ultimate authority, and that 
is Christ. I'm telling you, I don't know what it is. Perhaps it is just one of the mysteries of Scripture and the Spirit at work. One of the things that stops a guy in his tracks is when his wife, or a husband in his tracks, is when his wife, man, is reflecting redemption to him in spite of his stupidity. It forces them to stop. Here's what doesn't work. You need to get your act together. If you would just lead in this way, we wouldn't have this problem. If you just did these things, then our marriage would be better. That actually doesn't help. It's not godly. It's disobedient and disrespectful. Not, certain, not only to your husband, but again, the context of verse 18 is, as is fitting to the Lord. So if you want your husband to lead uh, ladies, you want him to lead in a way that is godly, man, respect him and reflect that through your conduct, which is redemptive. Additionally, support him in ways that empower him. Encourage him in a way that gives him confidence. You have the power to make your husband feel 30 feet tall or three feet tall with your words. I've sat in counseling appointments with husbands and wives, and I'll ask the husband, hey, where do you think the, the issue is? What do you think is going on? And before he can answer, the wife sometimes will step in and say, well, let me tell you what he hasn't done. Let me tell you who he isn't. Let me tell you about all the accomplishments he actually hasn't accomplished. Let me tell you everything that's wrong with him. And the beauty of the context of verses 18 and 19 is that in Scripture, it smashes where they're like, not, let, me, let me back up. It gives us clarity of, of who the problem is. See, when you look at, for instance, feminism, men are the problem. When you look at machismo, men are, uh, women are the problem, right? Did I say that right? Feminism, men are the problem. Machismo, women are the problem. When we go to the pages of Scripture, both of us are the problem. Okay? So let's just be really clear about that. Support your husband in a way that empowers him to move forward. Man, when my, when my wife encourages me, I'm like, let's go. I can keep going through that wall, <laughs> even though I may not, I shouldn't. <laughs> Encourage him in a way that gives him confidence. And here's the other thing. Exhort him. That might be a strong word of rebuke. Exhort him in a way that examines his heart. Wow, let me tell you that. You can do that. You should do that. You need to be doing that. You need to exhort your husband's. One of the things that, that God says in Genesis to Adam, he says, hey, uh, it's not good that you're alone. I'm going to make you a helper that is fit for you. Who else is called a helper in Scripture? The Holy Spirit. So wives, empower your husbands. Encourage them. And don't be afraid to exhort them. And when they push back, say, you, you actually don't have beef with me. You have beef with the Word. So exhort him in a way that he examines his heart. Why? Not because you're trying to mold your husband. That is, that is an individual, or in the context of this, that is, that is a wife that is trying to control and dominate by controlling how her husband is and molding him into the man he should be. Rather, your eyes are fixed on the Lord as you are encouraging him and empowering him and exhorting him because at the end of the day, 
your ultimate authority is Christ. You want him to be more like Christ. You want him to have confidence and succeed and flourish and thrive because your eyes are fixed on Christ. So what is submission? It is voluntary willingness to come under humility or to come under authority or leadership. That means that you are coming under, uh, under authority or, or the leadership of your husband, not just willingly, but with humility. Knowing that you actually might be way better at like 99% of things than he is. That is you coming under his authority, under his spiritual leadership with humility. Well, I don't like that. I shouldn't have gotten married. Here we go. Next, husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Gentlemen, we need to talk. First, verse 19 is actually one command. It's not two, it's one. Paul telling the husbands to, to love their wives during this time was countercultural as, uh, as women were seen as inferior to men. They were looked at as property and they were mostly uh, looked at so that they would produce heirs to their kingdom. For Paul to tell husbands to love their wives was wild. Yet, this is exactly how Jesus is with his bride, the church. He loves her. So, Verse 19 reads more like this. Love your wives by not being harsh with them. That is one command. So what does it mean to love? It means to be sacrificial. And if you want the best example of what sacrifice looks like, look to the cross. It certainly means that you're going to put her needs before you, but in addition to that, uh, before your needs, but in addition to do that, when we're looking at sacrifice, what that means is that we are constantly putting ourselves to death, stripping ourselves of self-righteousness and pride and arrogance. Martin Luther said that when God called us to repent, he called us to repent for a lifetime. So love is not just sacrificial because you want the other Snicker bar, right? Or the last popcorn, or you want the last whatever, right? Love is sacrificial in the sense that you are repeatedly dying to yourself daily, that your self-righteousness is being stripped away, that your pride is being stripped away, that you are walking in humility, putting her needs before yours. It means that you are a shepherd to your wife. That you protect her, that you honor her, that you lead her spiritually. It means that loving your wife is first rooted in a love for Jesus. It means that a love for your wife is a love that never stops pursuing. I don't care how long you've been married, you haven't arrived. And if you just got married or you've been married a couple years, you also haven't arrived. And those of you who want to get married, you're not going to arrive when you do. It is a love that is constantly pursuing. And the difficulty is that there are two sinners coming together to serve a perfect God. And yeah, there's going to be conflict. However, in light of that conflict, gentlemen, you were called to lead, to shepherd her, to care for her, 
Proverbs 31 says, an excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. I've heard men describe their wives as secretaries because they're good at scheduling, I guess. I've heard men talk about wives as uh, just the next stage of their lives. You don't want a wife then. You want a secretary. Right? You want to look at the next stage of your life, go get a dog. Don't get married. Man, it means that your wife is your first church and that you must shepherd your church. Not me. That you are to shepherd your church. So what does it look like? What is it? And that's one of the questions I get from a lot of the, uh, the, the guys. Well, what does it look like to actually spiritually lead my home? What does it look like to shepherd my wife? And let me tell you, it is through Bible study and prayer where you schedule time aside. I'm not going to really see some like, see, I told you, you should be spending this kind of time. Hold up, hold up. It is through Bible study and prayer and conversation and gospel-centered conversations that you're going to have. But primarily, what does it look like? It looks like you are doing those things yourself first. That you are the one digging into Scripture. That you are the one confessing sin, repenting of your sin. Here's the thing. Without repentance, there's going to be no change. That you're the one spending time in prayer with the Lord. And then as you do that, and as you are sanctified in that, that pours out into the culture of your home and how you lead your family. Sometimes many people or many men talk about Bible studies, and that's good, and talk about prayer with their family, and that's good. But the motivation is appearance. we got to do these things, because if we don't, we're bad. No, the motivation is God's glory for His name. So love your wives. How do you lead them spiritually? Make sure that you're doing these things yourself, that you are repenting of sin, that you are digging into the words. And Paul goes on to say, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This can look differently across the board. It could be abusive, whether it's physically or emotionally. We talked about that. If you're experiencing that, bounce and come talk to us. Don't be harsh with them, men. Additionally, it could be passive, where men are uh, checked out. That is, that they are physically present, but emotionally absent. That's being harsh with your wife. Some men are all about avoiding responsibility. An example, we can look at several, an example about avoiding responsibility is uh, oftentimes Man, wives are home with the kids, disciplining them, help raising them, doing all of the things. The husband's at work. He comes home from work. The wife tells him, man, this is all the things that have happened, and I need help in this area. And I've seen husbands say something like, well, you know, I've been away all day. I, man, I really just want to spend time with the kids because I only get to spend a couple of hours with them a night. Here's what happens when you do that, when you just overlook her. What you're saying in that moment is that you love your kids more than you love your wife. You avoid responsibility. It could be financial harshness. Man, some men, really good with the decimals, really good with the budget. Man, but you treat your wife like she's some 13-year-old looking for an, an allowance. Rather than taking her out on a date night, rather than like treating her well, rather than making sure she has all the things that she needs, You treat her like she has an allowance. That's 
financial harshness. You could also look at this uh, theologically. Some of you, boom, a lot of head knowledge, but you treat your wives harshly because they're not reading Calvin. No one cares. And in doing so, you're theologically harsh, which, ironically, robs you here. You miss it here. If this is you, you need to repent. See, the thing is about all these different ones, passivity, avoiding responsibility, theological harshness, and so on, that's what little boys do. And so many of you are just boys who can shave. Not men. Many of you are afraid of leading, which means you're not loving your wives well. Many of you say that leading is scary and hard. Yes. So lead. My mom would always say this phrase, no hay otra. In other words, like there's, there's no other. That's it. And so oftentimes men will say, man, I'm scared of leading. I'm, I'm scared of doing. No hay otra. You're here. <laughs> let's go. Ponte las pilas. Like, let's go. Repent. Get some community. Receive some counsel. Fix your eyes on Jesus and let's go. Oftentimes, some, well, i got to process everything from thoughts to emotions. And let me tell you, that's really, really good. However, you shouldn't just stay there all of the time. Process them. Bring others to speak into you. It will help develop your character. Repent of your sins so that you would have accountability. And let's go. Marriages preach a sermon. They preach a sermon about Christ and his bride. So wives, when you don't submit to your husbands, then you preach a sermon that says that the church does not have to submit to Jesus. Husbands, when you do not love your wife, then you preach a sermon that says Jesus ignores and does not love his bride, the church. Jesus, however, is in the business of redeeming hearts, ethics, and relationships. And so before we move on, Singles, told you, weren't off the hook. Haven't forgotten about you. A quick word. <laughs> if you're single, this is for you. If you're engaged, boyfriend, girlfriend, this is for you, okay? Beginning with the ladies. Women, the propensity to want to be in control or domineering or manipulative is not only found in the context of marriage, but in the desires of your flesh. That internal desire to rebel against God and sin others, that's where it actually is. It's not just in marriage. Therefore, if that is you, put it to death now. Put it to death. Repent. Your character matters right now. And should the Lord bring someone into your life, and if it leads to marriage, then you know exactly what submission actually means because you will have grown in godly character. It's not going to be hard. It's not going to be controversial because you are dealing with it on this side. What are you dealing with? Your heart. Men, 
The propensity to be harsh or passive isn't only in the context of marriage. It's a desire of your flesh. Therefore, put it to death now. Repent, pursue humility, so that should the Lord bring you someone, you lead out of confidence in the Lord. You lead out of humility. That mean you're going to have all of the answers. That happens now. That happens on this side. If you're engaged, I'm just going to put it out there. She's not your wife, and you are not his husband. Stop playing house. It's disobedient. It dishonors the Lord. It is disrespectful. Oftentimes with engaged couples, I hear from, from the women, right? I will hear, man, I just want him to lead me. He's not your husband. I can't believe she's not doing what I'm, what I'm asking her. She's not your wife. You want to lead someone? Lead yourself on this side. You can't do that? Then don't be in a relationship. You don't like that? Then relationships are your idols. That's simple. Repent. The gospel affects our marriage and relationships because Jesus is in the business of redemption. So let's keep moving. The next section of relationships is in regard to children and parents. And throughout all of this, again, I want to remind you of why it's being written. It's countercultural to the church. And therefore, the redemptive work of God in the Colossians is happening. And that's why Paul is telling them, like, hey, because you are new, because you have been redeemed, you can do this. Wives, you can do this. Husbands, you can do this. And now he gets to children and parents and fathers in particular. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Parents always love this part because they'll say, listen to the pastor. No, no, parents like point to scripture, right? So let's look at the text. He says, children, obey your parents. Here's, here's a couple of things, right? Obedience means carrying out what is expected of you or doing what you have been asked, given that it is not immoral, unethical, or illegal. Now, when we're talking about children, we're talking about one of two people. <laughs> those who are growing up at home with mom and dad, and those who are grown up and are at home with mom and dad. If that is you, hey man, you need to obey your parents, Mr. 27-year-old, okay? You need to obey your parents. Here's what I want you to know. Obedience doesn't mean that you agree with everything that your parents ask you to do. It doesn't mean that one day you wish to do it differently. But it does mean that as you obey uh, what they have asked of you, that it produces a couple of things in you. The first one is, when you obey your parents, it produces humility. That, that despite not agreeing, it produces humility, not your will. When you obey, it pleases God. Paul goes on to say, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. God delights in your obedience when you obey your parents. It sanctifies you. In other words, it makes you more like Jesus. It finally, it develops character. 
That is, it provides your parents with the confidence to count on you as you obey. I've met with dudes who have chosen to live at home, right? And one of the things I often hear is, yeah, I told my mom what's up. I'm like, no, that you don't. If, um, no, nah, man, like if she uh, makes your bed, cooks your food, and like you know, pays the bills, if you're not, if you're not dishing out any, well, I am. Okay, the water bill doesn't count. Okay, like if, if you're not doing any of that, then, then you're being harsh with your mom and you're not obeying her and that does not please the Lord. Obedience develops character and parents are able to count on their children. Number two, Paul continues. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, the word fathers can be translated to, to parents. He's addressing all parents, and so we will address all parents, but fathers in particular. And he says, do not provoke your children. What it means to not provoke means to don't be overruling or harsh or, or push them toward anger, discouragement, undermining them, unloving toward them. A result of provoking your children is that they become more and more likely to walk away from the faith. There's a statistic that says about 70% of all college freshmen walk away from the faith. Now, within that same statistic, many suggest that they actually walked away from their faith their freshman, or excuse me, their sophomore or junior year of high school, but the only reason they had the outward appearance is because mom and dad kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Rather than living out the gospel in word and deed, they forced him. So don't provoke your children, fathers. Fathers are shepherds. They must pastor their children. I meet with several men who can tell me stories about God, but they can't tell me the story of God. Your children are going to ask you those questions. Your children are going to look to you for answers. And I'm tired of hearing the same answer. I, j- I just don't know. So go to the pastor. I'm not their father. In Deuteronomy 6, we see God through Moses tell him, hey, uh, make sure that you're constantly sharing God's word with them as you are walking the way, as you're seating at the table, as you're hanging out together. Make sure that you're constantly sharing the word with one another. Parents, our role is to live out the gospel in word and deed before our children. Parenting our children with love and assurance of who they are, not who you want them to be, not the life that you're trying to live through them. This is an area where this is an area where I fail regularly. I fail regularly because man, one of the things that I want to press is not just obedience upon my son, but I press that because of fear. Fear of he's 16, 2 years he's going to leave. Have I taught him everything I need to do? Have I said all these things? Why isn't he doing the things he ought to be doing? I am driven by and consumed by fear. Therefore, that is why I am harsh with my son. And by God's grace, I keep repenting to him. And I've repented to my wife because it would even create tension in our house and and bitterness from her to me. 
And too many men are afraid to repent to their children because it's weak. No, bro, you're weak. And so when he says, fathers, do not provoke your children, doesn't mean you're not going to screw up. But when you do, you must own it. You must repent before your children. That's also a teaching moment. Repent before your children. And you're going to drop the ball. Okay? Pick it up and let's go. Keep repenting. The gospel affects how we engage our children and our parenting because Jesus is in the business of redemption. And fathers, if you don't know the word, if you have struggle with that, do you actually say that? Like, do you actually tell your boys, because I know you have them, like, do you actually tell them, this is where I'm jacking it up? I actually don't know my Bible. Do you actually put those things on the table? Do you put things on the table when you fail your children? I'll do better, I'll do better, I'll change it. Next time, next time, next time, next time. Without repentance, there is no change. And if we're going to lead our families well, then it begins with us, with where we are. And finally, we come to the last section. Paul addresses bond servants and their masters. And here he says the gospel affects our vocation once more because Jesus is in the business of redemption. Beginning with bond servants, uh, I believe this is verse 22. He goes on to say, Bondservants, obey in everything that is within reason those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You know, most commonly, one of the things that we need to be really clear on is to not necessarily think about American slavery because the individuals he's addressing here were, were servants or they were considered slaves. Uh, they were more like indentured servants. In other words, that they willingly came under someone to work their way out of debt, uh, to provide for their family or a variety of other causes. Today, we can correlate that a little more similarly to the relationship between an employee and an employer. And so Paul says that servants or employees are to obey their employer in everything, that is, if it's not sinful, and in obedience, it means, that is, if you have a boss and when they give you a task, in obedience, obeying them doesn't simply mean that you do what they've asked you to do. It means that you devote yourself entirely to that task and you complete it. That you devote yourself entirely to that task, that you devote yourself to the completion of that task. Why? What's your motivation? Man, you are serving the Lord. More than anything, you are serving the Lord in that task. Additionally, he says that when we devote ourselves to the task, we're doing so out of fear of the Lord, out of reverence to God. See, when we don't devote ourselves to the task, instead, we only do it when we're being watched. That's what he means uh, by being, uh, by, uh, by way of eye service and people pleasers. Like, in other words, you start working Right. Once it actually, uh, once your boss gets there, uh, Eric and I used to work for uh, the city of McAllen as lifeguards, and uh, we would be out there, and we had these like 
short whistle bursts as lifeguard when our boss's van would roll in, right? That's when everybody like started like sweeping and all of a sudden they're like looking over the water even though no one was in the pool, right? Like all of these different things where, where oh man, hey man, we need to do laps. We need to start training CPR uh, because the boss man is here. You'd see that van and everybody had a whistle or at this one particular location on the south side of McAllen at Los Encinos, uh, one of our lifeguards would sit on the roof under the palm tree so that when the van would come up, they'd clap and let us know that the boss was there. Anyway, don't do that. Uh, don't be like Eric and I. Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, the idea there was, right, like we were, uh, we, did it, we, we worked by way of eye service, people pleasing. In other words, we got to work when the van pulled up, even though we knew what to do. Well, when it comes to you as an employee, when you are given a task, see to it that you devote yourself to it. Complete it. Finish it. And you're finishing it primarily because of reverence to the Lord. See, when you don't devote yourself to the task, when you don't complete the task, when you think it's unimportant, when you make your own rules in light of what was just given, what you are demonstrating and what you are preaching is that you actually don't have reverence of the Lord. That there is a disconnect between you and, and the, there's a disconnect, I should say, uh, uh, from the gospel in this area of your life. That the gospel impacts all these other areas except here, because you don't know what it's like, God. You don't know what it's like. Paul says, in your obedience, you are first serving the Lord. And he tells bondservants that their reward is their inheritance. Now, that was a big deal in this context because bondservants, even though they could work their way out of like intended servitude, even though they could work their way out of it, they could not inherit property of their own. And so Paul reminds them of their eternal sonship in heaven. Hey, you're going to receive this reward. Therefore, keep your eyes, going back to the beginning of chapter 3, set your minds on things that are above where Christ is seated. To not be obedient toward your employer means that there are going to be consequences. He goes on to say, whatever you do, work heartily, devote yourself to the task, as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back. There is no partiality. Just because you're a Christian doesn't excuse you. They fired me from mamas because I'm a Christian. No, it's because you don't know how to wipe down tables. All right? My manager at Burger King is not a Christian. That's why he fired me. No, you burned the burgers. That's why. All right? Chick-fil-A is a Christian organization. No, you just keep showing up late every single day. That's why you got fired. Not daggers, right? Just because you're a Christian doesn't excuse you. Then he continues, beginning in verse, or verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Here's the, here's the big key here, right? Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he puts ownership on them as well. So he's telling them that, hey, if you're an employer, if you have employees, make sure that you're treating them fairly. They are not your animals. You are not better than them. You are not superior above them. Paul adds that, hey, you yourself, if you want some perspective and you want some humility, you yourself are actually a servant of Christ. He is your master. He puts that ownership on employers. Therefore, treat your employees justly and fairly, 
And pay them what they, what they deserve or what they need. Give them breaks. Give them opportunities to grow and succeed. Treat them justly and fairly. The gospel affects our vocation because Jesus is in the business of redemption. We're going to close it up real quick. All of this, we've looked at marriages, we've looked at parenting, we've looked at vocation. One of the big questions that you may have is, man, how is any of this possible? I'm going to give you two things and we'll close it up real quick. The first one is found in verse 17. We looked at it earlier today. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. How do we do this? How is this actually possible? Remember, if you are in Christ, your heart is changed. Your mind is renewed. Therefore, your motivation is different. You do this to bring glory to God's name. That is your motivation. Not to be a better version of yourself, but to bring glory to to God's name. And you do that by the second thing, being empowered by the Holy Spirit. That if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in you. Therefore, you are empowered by Him. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That little phrase, be filled, that's a command. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. And so what he is saying is when you have wine or when individuals have had a little bit too much wine, right? All of a sudden what happens? They get really confident. They bow their chest up. They get really loud. They walk in confidence because their judgment is clouded. What Paul is saying when he says be filled with the Spirit, he says, hey, the way uh, alcohol or the way wine would get someone confident, that's how you need to be in terms of being filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you, because He resides in you, you can walk in confidence. You can walk in confidence because of what God has done for you. You can walk in confidence and lead and serve and apologize and repent and do, uh, devote yourself to the task that is before you. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is both because you have him and that is both because you are growing in your relationship with God in Christ. So you can do this. Each one of you can do this. The work of God done for us, the work of God being done in us impacts everything. It impacts the condition of our hearts personally, our ethics with one another, particularly within the church, our relationships as we looked at today, and along with our vocation. There is no area of our lives that should go unaffected by the gospel. If that is so, then we are committing willfully sin against God. These various relationships that we discussed today, uh, all of the things that Paul writes were written about because Jesus is in the business of redemption and you are a new creation who is able to walk in newness in these relationships. The Holy Spirit resides in you, Christian. You can do this. All of this brings honor to the Lord. All of this brings glory to His name and sanctifies you for your good. So Christian, if you walk through these various areas of relationships and you know, you don't even need to reflect, you know where you've dropped the ball, repent. Repent. Wives, that might mean today you need to repent before your husband because, man, I've just been treating you 
poorly and I haven't been respecting you. Husbands, you need to go to your wives today, not at brunch, right? Not at dinner, but right now because we're going to go into a time of prayer of confession. Then repent before your wives. Singles, you are not off the hook. Perhaps relationship is your idol. Perhaps thinking that marriage, when you obtain it, this is going to be what completes me. And the truth is, it doesn't. You need to demote the idol of relationships and marriage and, and increase your love for God. Start there. Then when it comes to, to children, maybe you need to go to mom and dad today. Parents, fathers, you need to go to your children today in a little bit, like 30 seconds a little bit. If you're an employer, man, call up your employee. If you're an employee and you don't go work till tomorrow, tell your, your boss tomorrow and repent today. You've been bought with a price, Christian. You have been freed from your bondage to sin. And the Holy Spirit resides in you. Therefore, you can do this. You can do this. And if you're not a Christian, I'm so thankful that you're here today. So thankfully you chose to hang out with us. Apart from Christ, you are still enslaved to your sin. I know sometimes it might be like, man, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Man, apart from a new heart, you are enslaved to your sin. However, the good news of Christ the good news of God is that he sends his son into human history as the man Jesus Christ lives the life that you and I cannot live and dies the death that you and I deserve to die in our place for our sin on a cross, purchasing the redemption of sinners so that we might be released from the bondage of our sin. And in doing so, the Holy Spirit residing in us so that we would move forward. That is the promise God offers. Church, when it comes to our relationships, our ethics, our vocation, yes, our hearts, desires have changed, our mind has been renewed, but so has our motivation. Our primary motivation to see these areas in our lives changed is the glory of God's name. Let's pray. God, we come before you humbled, humbled by your Holy Spirit, humbled by him as he discerns and exposes the condition of our hearts. Lord, may we see that as a grace from you to confess, may we see this, excuse me, may we see this as a grace from you to confess and repent of our sin. Lord, we fall short daily. Our desire to wander is daily. And so, Holy Spirit, help us to remain steadfast. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Father, may the, may the word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts. 
for the purpose of seeing the gospel exposed in every facet of our life, beginning with our heart. God, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you this morning. Amen.